Hello, and this is Talking Politics. Of course, I'm not your usual host. My name is Galen Daruk, and I'm the host of the 538 Politics podcast based out of the United States. I had the opportunity to speak with David Runciman and Helen Thompson for an episode of our podcast about Boris Johnson's prorogation of Parliament. And as a sort of treat, we wanted to do a crossover and share this episode with you in the Talking Politics feed. I hope you enjoy. Hello and welcome to the 538 Politics Podcast. I'm Galen Druk. As you know, we are mostly, almost exclusively, an American politics podcast. But periodically, we've looked across the pond to Brexit for lessons on democracy and our current political moment globally. And that's what we're going to do today. So yesterday, on Wednesday, British Prime Minister Boris Johnson announced that he'd asked the Queen to suspend Parliament for a month, beginning shortly after lawmakers returned from break in September. The Queen approved the request, which will shorten the amount of time members of Parliament have to debate a Brexit deal. The deadline for a deal is October 31st, when Britain is scheduled to exit the European Union with or without a deal. The Speaker of the House of Commons, a conservative, called the move a constitutional outrage, and there's been back and forth over what it means for norms and laws in Britain. So here with me to discuss Boris Johnson's suspension of Parliament and more are two professors that regular listeners will be familiar with as our Brexit experts. They are David Runciman, who is the head of the Department of Politics and International Studies at the University of Cambridge. Hello, David. Hi. And also with us is Helen Thompson, a professor in the Cambridge Department of Politics and International Studies, focusing on political economy. Hello, Helen. Hi, Galen. And they also host the podcast Talking Politics, which I recommend to anybody who's interested in global politics. Helen, let's begin with the basics. Can you explain for an American audience exactly what the prime minister is doing from a rules perspective? Well, that's not a straightforward question to answer, uh, I'm afraid. Uh, A lot of this depends on the fact that we have had what is unusual in Britain, uh, a two-year parliamentary session. So it's nearly two years since the last Queen's speech when a government sets out its legislative agenda. Because of Brexit, um, and because there really hasn't frankly been any other legislative business, there wasn't a a Queen's speech um, last year. So what Boris Johnson has wanted to do is to bring this parliamentary session to an end, start another one which involves having a Queen's speech and to time that in relation to the parliamentary break such that there's going to be potentially significantly less time for Parliament to act in ways that might stop his government um, proceeding with no deal if that is what his government wishes to do. Yeah, I mean, I think the, the really key question here is the timing issue. So proroguing Parliament is something that, as Helen said, it, it is a routine part of the British Constitution. It's the timing of it. The fear of opponents of Brexit was always that Boris Johnson might prorogue Parliament during and over the end of October, so preventing Parliament from sitting during the time when the no deal will actually happen. And he's not done that. In many ways, he's still left many options open for people who want to stop his government pursuing its policy. He's just shrunk the time in which they can do it considerably. The other thing about proroguing Parliament that matters in this context is once it happens everything that preceded it gets annulled. So you have to sort out legislation or you have to start again. So during the period that the British Parliament will not be sitting, they can't pick up where they left off. When Parliament resumes in the middle of October, 
it'll be a new session and everything will have to start afresh. And that does make it much harder for the anti-Brexiteers to get their way. But it doesn't make it impossible. I mean, this is not, though there's a lot of talk about a coup and suspension of democracy, it's not like Boris Johnson has simply shut Parliament down. He's just shrunk Parliament's options. And so the politics of this is in many ways more significant than the constitutional implications. What is the political strategy here? What is Boris Johnson hoping will happen at the end of all of this? So Helen can answer this in a second. I think it's important to say that my feeling is that the strategist here is Boris Johnson's senior, current senior advisor, Dominic Cummings, the person he hired just a few weeks ago to run this strategy. This has Cummings's fingerprints all over it. It looks like the political strategy here is not just to squeeze Parliament's options, but frankly, to provoke the kind of outrage it has provoked. I mean, it is a goading strategy, as well as a straightforward attempt to make it harder for the opposition to get its way. And we must assume that everyone is preparing for the general election that's coming in months or possibly even weeks. And it will be a people versus the parliament election from the Boris Johnson, Dominic Cummings side. Yeah, I think the other thing, though, you have to bear in mind is, is is that this, as it always has done, involves the European Union. And that I would say that Boris Johnson's preference would still be to try to proceed with an orderly Brexit, with some change to the withdrawal agreement that Parliament would then accept by the 31st of October. Now, there's got to be some questions about even if he was able to get an agreement that he thought was satisfactory um, at the EU summit uh, in the middle of October, whether there would still be enough legislative time in order to get the withdrawal agreement and a political declaration through the, the House of Commons. But leaving that question aside, I think that One of the things that he wants to do with the actions yesterday, and I agree with David that this is a lot to do with Dominic Cummings' um, thinking, is to try to convince the EU that Parliament is not, in the end, an impediment to the UK leaving without an agreement. Because unless there's any fear at all on the EU side that no deal might be the outcome, there isn't any possibility of doing anything that will change the agreement or the political declaration in any way that would make getting the withdrawal agreement um, through Parliament possible. David, you said that it was an overstatement to call this a coup. Obviously, that's a very strong word. Is this a constitutional crisis? Well, what's happened makes sense in the terms of the British Constitution. I don't think it's the case that the Boris Johnson government straightforwardly has done anything unlawful. I mean, there was some thought that the Queen ought to have resisted. There's a kind of irony here. I think there's a comparison with the United States where people on the left find themselves hoping that the FBI would rescue them from Donald Trump. And in Britain, people (laughs) on the left are now thinking that the Queen is going to rescue them from Boris Johnson. She's not. She did her constitutional duty, which is to follow the advice of her ministers on questions of prerogative power. And that's what this is. It's going to reach the courts already in Scotland. Legal action is underway. It may eventually reach the Supreme Court. And our Supreme Court is not quite like yours, not least. It's a very new institution. No one quite knows what will happen. And when it does reach the courts, there will be deep constitutional implications. But I think for now, it is more of a political crisis than a constitutional crisis. But it is a real political crisis because it has set Parliament against the executive. And the stakes are very high. And the stakes are very high for the people involved. And they are very high for Boris Johnson, but whatever he does, the stakes are high because he's committed to leaving the European Union on the 31st of October, do or die. So the options for him are do or die. 
Helen, this is all very interesting from a political science perspective, but also a little amusing given that a monarchy is pretty foreign to Americans. Is there a sense that the Queen was inappropriately brought into the quagmire of Brexit politics? I don't think that she that she has been thus far for the reason that um, David um, said is is that she's acting on the advice of, of her ministers. I think that what we have seen from some point earlier in the year is is that in different ways and at different times, both sides, or some people, I should say, on both sides, have constructed some idea in which the Queen is going to, you know, ride to save them from what they think of as a, as a terrible fate, either of, of Brexit being defeated or Brexit um, happening. And it's just implausible to think that the Queen, who you know has been an extraordinarily effective monarch for a very long period of time, is going to politicise the monarchy in this way on either side in a moment of, of national crisis. It's, it's simply not going to happen. I mean, you could say aside from anything else, the monarchy's got quite a number of other problems at the moment without throwing itself into this. I, the, the one thing I would say, though, is there is a possibility here that the, where this is going to lead, it may not happen, but it could lead to a vote of no confidence in the government. And if the government falls... And there is an attempt to create a new government. So in a sense, if there are no ministers to advise the Queen, I mean, there will always be someone in post, but that, if that person's authority has gone, then it does become more of an acute political question what the monarchy decides. There are at least potential scenarios in which the choice of the next prime minister preceding a general election does draw the Queen or her non-ministerial advisers into politics. It's still pretty remote. That's the only way it's going to happen. The thing that's never going to happen, ever is that the Queen refuses to follow the advice of her constitutionally appointed Prime Minister. That would be suicide for the monarchy, and she's not going to do it. So to be a little far-fetched momentarily, according to Britain's constitutional monarchy, is there any role that the Queen theoretically could play in resolving what clearly seems like a political crisis in the sense that there's a popular mandate to leave the European Union and not the political tools to make it happen in an orderly way. In theory, is there any role that the Queen could play in this? No, I mean, the only question I think would be at the moment, if there was a general election and there were another hung parliament, what the Queen would do or could do in relation to who was the next um, Prime Minister. Because if you go back to the general election of February um, 1974, she actually asked Ted Heath, who was the incumbent Prime Minister, first to have a, a go at forming a, a new government, even though that the Conservative Party was no longer the largest party in the in the uh, the House of Commons. Some people think that's the nearest the Queen's come to making some kind of, of political decision in regard to prime ministers. But I think that in the circumstances that we would be looking at after a, um, a hung parliament, then it's quite difficult to see a, a replay of, of 1974 in, in action. Yeah, I think the Queen is probably a distraction in this issue. The The resolution of this crisis, this political crisis, is going to come in one of two ways. It's either going to happen in Parliament or there's going to be a general election and the general election will change the political landscape. I mean, it is the case, though there's been a lot of complaining from the people who are outraged by what Boris Johnson has done, that he has prevented Parliament from having its say. But this Parliament has spent a lot of the last three years having its say, and it's not really got anywhere. And that is a big part of the problem. Parliament itself is fundamentally divided. The political parties are divided. It's a very fractured landscape within the House of Commons. 
It's very hard to see any lasting resolution to the Brexit crisis without a new parliament. And a new parliament only comes about after a general election. The Queen, she can prorogue this parliament, but the one that meets after the Queen's speech is the same people. The only way you change the personnel is you vote them out. She can't do that. All right. So now that we've gotten the fun Queen-related questions out of the way, um, that was fun. <laughs> back to back to reality, what are the possibilities going forward? Is this suspension, this proroguing, a foregone conclusion? Could it not happen at all? And then also, what is the opposition party likely to do or try to do in response? Well, I'd be very surprised if there can be a, a successful legal challenge to the proroguing of Parliament. I mean, I don't rule it out because I've said so many things on various podcasts that have turned out not to be right that I'm going to put this caveat into anything I'm going to um, to say about this. I, th- I think that the, the ball is really back in the court of those who want to stop Brexit or this is this is a difficult question as to whether to term them the people who want to stop Brexit, which I think is largely what they are, rather than the people who want to stop No Deal, which is the way that they would like to present themselves as um, being. So they made a move the day before the proguing of Parliament, sort of trying to suggest that they that they that they were going to act as a, a people's Parliament. I think the phrase was the phrase that was um, used to ensure that No Deal um, didn't um, happen. But they have some choices to make now. The choice is, I think, really between whether they want to proceed with a vote of no confidence. That could lead to the formation of an alternative government if it were um, successful, or whether they want to take the opportunity, which will be there in, in early September, when there will be a short period when Parliament returns, to try to legislate something similar to what was done in March, what was called the Cooper-Letwin Bill, which effectively instructed the executive to request uh, an extension um, from the EU 27 to Article 15. And Galen, you use the phrase opposition party, I think, and that's the big issue here, which is who do we mean when we're talking about the opposition party? So if we're talking about the formal opposition, the Labour Party, that's one thing. The Labour Party is split, but also the Labour Party's priority throughout under Jeremy Corbyn's leadership has been to force a general election that they hope they might win. Then there's what's sometimes called the Rebel Alliance, which is the collection of people who in different ways and for different reasons want to prevent Boris Johnson from pursuing his stated policy of leaving on the 31st of October. And that Rebel Alliance includes the person you mentioned in your introduction, the Speaker of the House of Commons, John Burko, who you called a Conservatives. I think most Conservatives would be spluttering over their cornflakes at that description. They don't think of him as a Conservative at all anymore. Oh, really? And there's a group of people... Yeah, I mean, he, not only is he ostensibly neutral, I mean, he was a Conservative as the Speaker, but he is doing everything in his power now, um, it's quite clear, to oppose the policy of the Conservative government. So there's a whole group of people who potentially can come together around Brexit, including the Labour leadership, but they are themselves very divided. So there's like the British version of a never-Trumper? And, yeah, I mean, it's are they never Johnsoners? Because Johnson seems to provoke some pretty outraged reactions. Are they never Brexiteers or are they never no dealers? I think what they are is never no dealers. Mm-hmm. And, and on that basis, they can agree on quite a lot. Unfortunately, what they can't agree on is either strategy or tactics. <laughs> they can agree on some principles. And by shortening the time that they have available to do this, Johnson has made it, or Cummings, I should say, has made it much harder for them, but not impossible you know, there is there is the brief period before prorogation, which is next week, when Parliament can make some 
decisions. And then there is the brief period after prorogation, before the 31st and before the crucial European summit, when Parliament could also make some decisions. The one thing that has fundamentally changed since Theresa May's time is when Theresa May was Prime Minister and Parliament passed legislation requiring that she ask for an extension, she could do that. Johnson couldn't do that. So an extension for Johnson is death. He, he can't go beyond the 31st of October and survive. So were he somehow to be forced by this parliament to ask for an extension, it would be effectively the end of his prime ministership. So that's why the stakes are so high. And the thing that the Johnson administration wants to prevent is parliament having the opportunity to pass the legislation requiring an extension. And that time frame is now very, very tight. It's not impossible, but it's very, very tight. It should say, I think it could be added, though, that he could be forced the EU could say no in principle. And even if it said yes, it could attach such conditions to it that Johnson would say no to. And I think that is a certain weakness in the um, stop no deal um, position, because there isn't any way that they can mandate Johnson to accept any conditions whatsoever that the EU 27 might attach to the extension or an extension, I should say. I mean, one reason that this is a political crisis that touches on a constitutional crisis is there is some quite loose talk about this government refusing to do what Parliament mandates. So, for instance, one or two people have said, were this government to lose a vote of no confidence, it would refuse to quit. Parliament could pass legislation requiring of this government X or Y or Z, and the executive might say no. There might be conditions under which the executive would say no. And that does take us into uncharted territory. I mean, that then we are well beyond the fights that took place in the May administration. Then we are in a straightforward contest between executive power and legislative authority. And in the British context, I think much more so than in the American case, we don't know what happens because we don't have those fights, right? What traditionally happened was when the executive loses the confidence of the legislature, it falls. So what happens when a legislature votes the executive out and the executive refuses to fall. I don't think they would do that, but you don't know anymore. I think one of the things that's really um, interesting, at least from an analytical um, point of view, is is that you know, we have a, a constitution in which precedent and judging in relation to experience is supposed to be um, central. But we then made a constitutional change, even though it wasn't presented like that at the time, which was the fixed term Parliament Act. It wasn't at least presented in the very acute terms in which it actually has had um, consequences. That has meant that all precedents in regard to the relationship between the executive and the legislature in regard to confidence votes is out of the window. So actually, we are already in new constitutional waters because of this piece of legislation that was passed during the 2010 to 2015 Parliament. From an American perspective, not having a written constitution, as is the case in Britain, is, again, kind of interesting or somewhat confusing. So when we talk about a constitutional crisis, if there isn't one clear document that stands as the Constitution of the United Kingdom, is it just a fact of violating norms or creating problems that it seems like the system as it exists can't overcome? What do we mean by a constitutional crisis in the British context? That's a good question. I think a lot of this is new. And I think part of the challenge here is that the role of the courts is relatively unclear, because so much of this is convention. 
And yet there is a concerted attempt, and it began a couple of years ago with the Gina Miller case, to use the courts to assert some principles that go beyond conventions that are actually, it's possible to say that certain actions are unlawful under the terms of the UK constitution. But all of those unlawful acts are simply in relation to individual pieces of legislation, including potentially the Fixed Term Parliament Act. They're not unlawful in relation to a single codified document that people can refer to. So you can kind of chop and change and pick your legislation to try and make your case that the law has been broken. And Parliament passed a piece of legislation relatively recently, a, a kind of not trivial, but um, contrived piece of legislation around uh, Northern Ireland and the need to report on the current state of devolved government in Northern Ireland in order precisely to be able to make the case now that the suspension of Parliament is unlawful. So I think what we mean by a constitutional crisis in this sense is that the conventions are being turned by some people into legal requirements that other people are denying. But that's so different from the American context. And it's so different also, I think, because we really don't know what the Supreme Court in this country thinks is the scope of its authority here. Because we also have a very strong convention that Parliament decides parliamentary business. So for instance, I don't think the Supreme Court could reconvene Parliament. So even if the Supreme Court declares that prorogation is illegal, it's not clear that the Supreme Court can actually then do anything about it. That's what the shape of a UK constitutional crisis looks like. It looks like chaos. Yeah, I mean, I think that we have to put the idea of us having a constitutional crisis into a, a much longer perspective. I mean, I think that there's an argument that says is essentially that we've been in an ongoing constitutional crisis of one kind or another since we joined the European community, as it then was, in, in 1973, because we changed something that was fundamental to our constitution, the idea that Parliament and Parliament um, alone could um, legislate, and then we didn't face up to what the constitutional consequences of that were. And then having done that, we made a whole series of other constitutional changes, not least in, in relation to the way in which the Union of the United Kingdom um, was governed, later the introduction of a human of the Human Rights Act, um, certain pieces of legislation that said that certain things couldn't happen unless a referendum um, took place. All these created a, a constitutional mess without, as I think, collectively as a country facing up to what we were doing in making all these ad hoc changes. So we've got ad hoc changes over a four decade period that were poorly understood, that messed around with precedent. And then we say we're supposed in a constitutional crisis in, in relation to constitutional precedents and norms that in some sense no longer exist. So in that sense, I think that it's entirely predictable that we're floundering around constitutionally at the moment. And at the same time, that it allows pretty much anybody to say that a position that they are pushing for really what are political reasons is actually something that they are doing because the other side has committed some kind of constitutional outrage. And the other thing to say is that I think we all have a sense of what a future constitutional crisis might look like, and it may be coming sooner rather than later, which is the breakup of the union. So the other context here, and we've discussed it before with you, Galen, is doing Brexit in a context of devolved government in the UK, but particularly to Scotland and the, the creation of a Scottish parliament, complicates this enormously. And it's hard to see how we're not heading at least a long way further down the road, if not all the way there to Scottish independence and we're certainly heading down a road that that's going to be tested again. The news this morning in the UK is that the leader of the Scottish Conservative Party, Ruth Davidson, who's a very popular figure, a centrist figure, a broadly speaking anti 
Brexit, or at least certainly anti-no-deal figure, and therefore a critic of Boris Johnson from inside the Conservative Party, has resigned as the Scottish Conservative leader. And Boris Johnson has made great claims that he is a unionist. He is the leader of the Conservative and Unionist Party. But his party doesn't seem to be able to straddle the union anymore. It, it is itself breaking apart here. And at some point, the big, I think, constitutional challenge is going to be the contest between whatever the Westminster government decides and resistance in Scotland from the Scottish Parliament. Again, that may end up in the courts, it probably will. But that is a fundamental question. I mean, that's a story that goes back hundreds of years. And that is a fundamental question about and challenge to centuries of constitutional order. And we are, we're not there yet. But we're a lot nearer than we were even 24 hours ago. And we're a lot nearer than we were four or five years ago when we had the last test of Scottish independence. And that resignation was as a result of this prorogation. Uh, no, in her words. I mean, it's just an unfortunate coincidence. <laughs> you believe that if you want. It's primarily because she wants to spend more time with her new child and also because she can no longer stomach, broadly speaking, the government's Brexit policy. But, uh, you know, timing is everything in politics. And she chose to resign this morning. And so one thing that we've talked a lot about in the United States over the past three years are the role that norms play in a democratic system and that not everything that guides our governance is codified into law. From a political science perspective, what role do norms play in maintaining a functioning democracy outside of what's actually written into law in Britain in particular? I mean, the whole constitution in many ways is rested on this notion that there were certain things that you could legally and constitutionally in a formal sense do, but that you shouldn't do because that they were uh, at odds with the customs of uh, and norms of the country that was being governed. Now, that only works if you have some reasonable agreement, at least amongst those in, in Parliament, about what those norms are and how they relate to the customs, the political customs um, of the country. Now, I think it, it's fair to say that in practice that the United Kingdom has actually long had quite a lot of disagreement about what the, these norms and customs are. You had a period, for instance, in the in the run-up to the, um, the First World War, where there was effectively a, a constitutional conference because the country was seen as being in a constitutional crisis and couldn't carry on in the way um, it, which it was. And that did involve also the relationship between the executive, the legislature and, 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 and the people. And it also involved the question um, of the union. So in one sense is is that Britain's had this strange, or the United Kingdom, I should say, has had this strange politics that has simultaneously relied on the idea of norms. And then when you look for them in practice, you can't often find them. But I think that what has happened at the moment is the way in which a, a whole set of, of different things, the the political polarisation that Brexit in itself has produced, the political polarisation that the tensions in the Union, particularly in regard to Scotland, um, have produced. The fact that we engaged in constitutional change without seeming to understand what the consequences of doing so were have all come together and actually made it made expose the fact of, of how hollow the in some sense the whole idea of having a constitution based on any kind of agreement, let alone agreement about specific things, whether they be laws or norms, actually has become. And I, what I would add to that is that you know, there is this kind of fraying of norms going on, but it's not, after all, just confined to politics. 
there's a wider social setting for this, including the way in which people communicate and discuss about all of their various divisions, many of which are political, but not all of them online and in the various sort of tribal groupings that we've all formed ourselves into. And there is, you know, one of my feelings about the last 24 hours in Britain is that this, this you know, this fraying is, is happening everywhere. So each side thinks that the other side is breaking the norms. You know, your norm breaking is my calling it out like it is and vice versa. And there is also this um, kind of inflation or escalation of language which happens around all of these disputes. So everyone is accusing everyone of having committed a coup. And you know, part of me thinks, well, what are you going to say when an actual coup happens? You know, we're, you know, it's, I don't want to sound pompous about this, but we're slightly de- devaluing the language, you know, the, the norms that we rely on. One of which I think is that you don't escalate. You know, you don't go to the mattresses straight away. Um, mm-hmm. You you are relatively, or at least you try and be relatively proportionate in your response, and. British politics over the last two to three years has become increasingly disproportionate in its response on all sides. And it's a social as well as a political phenomenon. And the fraying of norms, which is definitely a part of this story, I think part of the danger is that we think it's somehow happening in politics and on the part of professional politicians. I think we're all complicit in this. Yeah. Maybe you are, maybe you are on 538, but everyone else is. (laughs) You know, we we try our hardest to be responsible. Um, and I really enjoy this kind of, you know, political science, theoretical based conversation. But getting back to the on the ground politics between now and October 31st, what are the options? So it sounds like there could be a vote of no confidence. There could be a general election. There could be some new agreement with the European Union. We don't know. What are the options looking down the pike and what looks likely or unlikely? I think all of those. You know, the, uh, so Dominic Cummings, who for now at least seems to be running the show, is famous for um, his great admiration of Bismarck because he thinks Bismarck is almost the only politician in modern history who could see it all, could see all the permutations, could see the multiple decision trees and all the possible routes. And he's one imagines he's reveling in this sense of almost limitless possibility here. The EU could shift on the backstop. The Irish government could shift on the backstop. A vote of no confidence could happen. Parliament could get its act together. The rebel alliance could finally discover that they have more in common than we realise. All of these things are possible with a clock ticking where there is a default, and the default is a no-deal Brexit. I think everybody, bar a few members of the Conservative Party, but even then very few people in government, want to avoid a no-deal Brexit. I think Johnson wants to avoid it. There is also the possibility that a general election will come at a very awkward moment in this for all sides, either just before or just after Brexit. And then we really are in unprecedented territory. It's impossible to think of a British general election happening in the middle of the event that it's meant to resolve. And that does seem like a real possibility here, that people will be asked to vote in a general election, which after all is not a referendum. So they're not being asked to vote on Brexit. They're being asked to vote who they want to be governed by for primarily domestic reasons, for their pocketbooks, for their schools, for their hospitals, in the middle of the event that that election is needed to resolve. And that's the thing that to me comes closest to really being off the edge of what we're familiar with. And I think that could well happen. Yeah, I, I think there are a number of things that are actually different than where we were, where we looked in some sense like we were facing the same set of choices um, back uh, in March, including then the possibility of a, a general election. Is What has changed is the domestic 
political situation. And I think that it, it's changed in in three ways. It's changed, first of all, by the emergence of the Brexit party as a rival to the Conservatives. That can explain quite a, a, a great deal, I think, of the shift in the Conservative Party um, since March, where you have many more MPs who now appear willing to at least go along with creating a credible threat of um, no deal compared to what was the case in March. The second thing is is that the, the Liberal Democrats have basically shoved out of the way the Change UK MPs and emerged as the strongest party, leaving aside the Scottish Nationalists and the Welsh um, Nationalists in Scotland and Wales, of the Stop Brexit party. They're explicitly um, committed to that position and their new leader has said um, in an interview, I think it was either last this week or um, last week, that she she wouldn't accept leaving the European Union even if the even if the electorate voted for it a second time in a referendum. And then the third thing that has, uh, has happened is, is that the Labour Party has simultaneously moved closer to a Remain position, but at the same time that some of its MPs who actually want Britain to leave, or at least think Britain should leave the, the European um, Union, have come out in the open and saying that they regret not voting for Theresa May's agreement. So the Labour Party, I think, is, is more fractured um, in terms of its at least its overt positions than it was back in March. And I think that one thing that Dominic Cummings was trying to do was essentially to try to create in the domestic politics of it, leaving Brexit aside from itself, the substance of it aside for the moment, is to create a kind of a choice between are you in favour of, when it really comes to it, Brexit, even if that means no deal, or are you in favour of Jeremy Corbyn? And so he wants to, in that sense, I think he's been quite effective in pushing the Remain parties, including the Labour Party under Corbyn's leadership, into a closer alliance with each other that is actually going to cause them all, in the end, quite some difficulty. I've asked this question before, and I know it's difficult to know exactly because there are so many different options and so many different ways that you can ask the British public what they want. But at this point, what does the British public want? The polling evidence is relatively clear. It hasn't moved much, but there's been a consistent small majority of people who think that it would be better not to leave the European Union, or depending on how the question is framed, that Brexit was a mistake. That's not the same as saying that there's a majority of people who think that the result of the referendum shouldn't be respected. You know, there's a kind of, there's a hypothetical aspect to that question. Do you wish it hadn't happened? And then there's, given that it has happened, should we go ahead with it? And the second one is harder to test, but my feeling is that you sh- no one should assume that there is a clear majority of people in this country who think that the result of the referendum should be overturned. And the other thing that this government is doing, and I know we keep talking about Dominic Cummings, but he, he does seem to be central to this strategy. And he has said it, he doesn't say much, but it's one of the few things that he's on record as having said, and it's become the catchphrase of this government, which is that politicians don't get to choose which public votes they respect. And that would be a slogan in this general election. I think the other thing he's trying to do is to divide politics between the people who will, even if they regret it and wish it hadn't happened, 
respect the result of a democratic event and the people who in some sense are being forced to say they will overturn the result of that democratic event. Again, I don't think we know what will happen there because to fight a general election on those terms is really hard, even over a short campaign. We just have four week, maybe even shorter in this case, four week campaigns. But in four weeks, other issues intrude. And in 2017, Theresa May thought she could win an election comfortably by saying, if you vote for me, I'll give you, I'll respect the result of the referendum. It turned out to be an election about completely different issues, regular domestic politics, which is the Labour Party's hope. So no one knows. But I think the strategy is clear. It is to make politics binary along the lines that this government thinks might favour it, because I think it suspects that when it comes to the crunch, there are quite a lot of people in this country who wish Brexit wasn't happening, but who are very uncomfortable about overturning the result of the referendum. There doesn't have to be a huge number of those people for it to be enough to keep this government in business, but it's a high-wire act. At this point in time, does it look like if there were to be a general election before October 31st, that Boris Johnson could be successful in gaining more seats in Parliament and having a majority behind him? The arithmetic is complicated because it does look like he's lost Scotland. So he's lost uh, more than 10 seats there. There There are conservative seats in broadly remain areas which are hugely vulnerable so you'd have to pick up seats somewhere else it's it's still pretty hard it's a huge gamble but it is possible yeah i agree i mean i think that the the thing that he would i think most worry about in trying to um, realize this is is that the brexit party hasn't really been defeated i mean it's been it's been weakened significantly if you look at the polling but you can still see it polling in some polls up to about 15% sometimes it's lower down about 7 or 8% but even at 7 or 8% is at the high end from the conservatives point of view so Although that um, the Conservatives have now got a relatively steady lead uh, in the polls because of the Liberal Democrats' recovery and taking votes away from um, Labour, I don't think that they've done any... He's, he's got anywhere near enough done in terms of unifying the Leave vote into the Conservative Party to be confident that an election could be won, particularly, as David says, when you then have to start from the premise that seats will be lost in Scotland and also in, in some parts of the southeast of England as well. And and one last thing on this, there there is a kind of catch for Johnson, which is Nigel Farage, the leader of the Brexit Party, has said he will enter an electoral pact with Johnson, but his condition is what he calls a clean Brexit or what other people call a no-deal Brexit. But the trouble with a no-deal Brexit is that, okay, so he may then get the Brexit Party on side, but he's going to scare the hell out of a lot of centrist, centrist voters. On the other hand, were Johnson to get a deal which is a kind of warmed-up version of Theresa May's deal with some tweaking about the backstop through Parliament, which he just about could. Who knows? It's unlikely, but he could if Europe moves a bit too. That will be much better news for him with those centrist voters, but the Brexit party might be furious and fight him. There is no good option there for him. I mean, each one is a risk, and I don't think he's going to be able to choose either which one he prefers. He's just going to have to take what he gets. But we've, we've learned, you know, that Boris Johnson, I think we always knew this about him, that, uh, you know, when he goes in, he's all in. I mean, he is at some level someone who's quite comfortable with high wire politics. So as usual, when I've talked to the two of you, there are a lot of options and there's no telling what will happen next. One thing I am curious about. And are you I, saying that we don't tell you what's going to happen, um, Galen? <laughs> I mean, we talk about the possibilities and their significance, but, uh, you know, we're not going to just pull predictions out of nowhere. We do not here at 538 have a Brexit forecast model. 
telling people when it will happen, if it will happen, how it will happen. I'm sure that would make Nate's head explode. But I do want to ask about that deadline, October 31st. We've heard a lot of doomsday scenarios about what could happen if there is not a deal by that day. People aren't able to get their pharmaceutical drugs. There's a rekindling of conflict in Northern Ireland. Are those doomsday scenarios realistic? Is that what hangs in the balance in all of this? I mean, I think to be honest, sitting where we are, it's inc- it, it, you know, it, it, it's, it's very difficult to know what the scale um, of the the problems would be in the in the face of no deal. Would it be extraordinarily difficult? I think that that I mean, if you ask that in a general sense, the answer is yes. What does that mean in a whole ton of specific senses? Then I'm not sure, um, and I think that. You can't, in trying to think about that, um, leave out the question of what the political response, not only in this country, would be to no deal, but what the political response in Ireland would be to no deal, is what the political response in other European countries um, would um, be. Would be this something that would last for a few days and then we then we would be back into negotiations. I think that it, it's not that we're in politics and then we're going to go into, you know, like whatever we want to call it, dystopia, and then the two are just going to disconnect from each other. The politics is still going to be there from the moment that no deal starts and it is going to shape what the consequences of it will be. I would agree. I mean, the, clearly, it's it's economically precarious. And th- there are some pretty grim scenarios. This is a we like everywhere else. We're a just in time economy. We have very, you know, th- things operate on very fine margins, including supplies of basic goods. And it, it could go badly wrong. But it depends a lot on human psychology, too. A lot of this, there's not just some independent space where a no deal happens, and then its consequences are foreordained. A lot depends on how human beings respond to the uncertainty. And that, like Helen says, I think goes back to the politics. And the one thing I would just reiterate is the thing that we don't know is this if this happens, this 31st no-deal scenario happens either just before or just after or even during a general election, then we're we're not just in uncharted political territory, we're in uncharted psychological territory. Politicians will be either holding or losing their nerve on a grand scale. And it will be not least a test of people's ability to withstand huge pressure, politicians and, and the public too. And I think anyone would be foolish to say they know which way this will go. And we live in not just a just-in-time economy, but we live in a social media landscape where cascades of information and cascades of rumour and cascades of of fear and panic can be quite real. Um, So it's, I mean, I think it's worth taking those doomsday scenarios seriously, but I think it would be a mistake to think that anything about the doomsday scenario is foreordained. It's not. Yeah, I think that David's absolutely right about the the psychological aspects of it and the way that that relates to um, politics. I mean, in Britain for the last few years, three years, I think many of us have 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 had to get used to a rather different relationship to politics in daily life than we had before. Even those like David and I who are you know spend our careers thinking about politics. Now, that's one thing in terms of what's happened in the last um, three years, or yeah, the most the, just over three years now. Is is but if we were to move into a, a, a no-deal um, situation against a backdrop in which there still would be intense political um, drama, indeed the political drama would actually, I think, get be more um, acute, it's very difficult to know how many people are going to react to that. It's not difficult to think that quite a lot of it might be 
sort of blind panic about what is happening. But I wouldn't want to, you know, like rule out the possibility that things might turn out in terms of the ways in which people reacted to it more in a more complex fashion than just saying everybody's going to be running around in a headless kind of way going, what on earth do I do? Yeah. It'll be interesting. Yeah, indeed. I mean, I'm I'm fascinated, and I look forward to talking to you when it when it does happen or doesn't happen. I mean, just to end here, does it seem like the likeliest scenario at this point is that either with a renegotiated withdrawal agreement or no deal at all, Britain will leave the European Union on October 31st? I mean, I, I will. I would say yes, simply because this government and this prime minister and the many and the people around him many of whose careers now depend on him and his success cannot survive an alternative scenario so he will do anything in his power and they will do anything in their power to make that happen it doesn't mean it will happen but certainly naming an alternative scenario that's likelier is impossible all possible alternative scenarios then you're close to something which is maybe 50 50 but the likeliest named outcome now is britain leaves on the 31st yeah i'd say it's it's more probable than not that britain will leave the european union i think the 31st of october uh i think that if you got to a position where it was possible to do some legislation that required you know like a few more weeks of parliamentary activity then i I think that and the alternative was no deal then i i think that it would be strange for um, Boris Johnson government to say that that wasn't going to happen, that we're going to have to leave without a deal. So I'm not reasonably sure because you can't be reasonably sure about anything, but I certainly would put the balance of probability on, on Britain leaving the European Union in the end. But I wouldn't want absolutely to say that that means it will be by the 31st of October. So the 31st of October is Halloween here in the United States. Is it also Halloween in Britain? It is. Yeah, that's one of the traditions that we borrowed from you. Thanks. <laughs> all right. Well, I'm, I'm sure it will be uh, an interesting Halloween for all. But anyway, let's leave it there. Thank you, Helen and David, for joining me today. Thank you, Galen. Thanks. Helen Thompson is a professor in the Cambridge Department of Politics and International Studies, focusing on political economy. And David Runciman is the head of the Department of Politics and International Studies at the University of Cambridge. They host the podcast Talking Politics, which, again, I recommend that folks go check out. My name is Galen Druk. Jake Arlo is our intern. A special thanks to Soyla Aparicho and Jane Darby Menton. You can get in touch by emailing us at podcasts at 538.com. You can also, of course, tweet at us with any questions or comments. If you're a fan of the show, leave us a rating or review in the Apple Podcast Store or tell someone about us. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you soon.